Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you! Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka, in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW Eugene, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, in New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire, on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin, on WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast-to-coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week. Usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, but once again, you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at NicoleSandler.com, holding down the fort for Brad Friedman and Desi Doyen. As you should be aware by now, Brad and Desi have been out for a little while because Brad's father suffered a catastrophic stroke, and the prognosis is not good. Having been there, I know what it's like. So thank you for your patience, as I do my best to hold down the fort for Brad and Desi until they can get back. And boy, is there a lot going on. So we'll try to make some sense of it. We'll start with a look at, well, the news, because what's going on is unprecedented. We'll begin with Donald Trump's acknowledgement on Sunday that he raised corruption accusations against former Vice President Joe Biden during a call with Ukraine's leader. It's really a stunning admission as pressure mounts on Democrats to impeach Trump over allegations that he leaned on a foreign government to help damage a political rival. Uh, Ukraine has had a tremendous corruption problem. Somehow they were involved in a lot of different things that took place in our country. And hopefully it can be straightened out. And I will say, the new president, we had a very good talk, the new president got elected based on the fact that he would end corruption. That was probably his number one thing. That call was a great call. It was a perfect call. A perfect call. What wasn't perfect is the horrible thing that Joe Biden said. And now he made a lie when he said he never spoke to his son. I mean, give me a break. He's already said he spoke to his son. And now he said yesterday very firmly, who wouldn't speak to your son? Of course you spoke to your son. So he made the mistake of saying he never spoke to his son. He spoke to his son, but more importantly, what he said 
about the billions of dollars that he wouldn't give them unless they fired the prosecutor. And then he bragged about how they fired the prosecutor and they got the money. This could be the proverbial camel straw for many Democrats on the fence regarding impeachment. House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff, who has been reluctant to use the I-word up until now, appeared on CNN State of the Union Sunday. Well, Jake, you know I have been very reluctant to go down the path of impeachment uh, for the reason that I think the founders contemplated in a country that has elections every four years, that this would be an extraordinary remedy, a remedy of last resort, not first resort. But if the president is essentially withholding military aid at the same time that he is trying to uh, browbeat a foreign leader into doing something illicit, that is providing dirt on his opponent during a presidential campaign, uh, then that may be the only remedy that is co-equal to the, the evil uh, that that conduct represents. Um, we're going to uh, hear from the director uh, of national intelligence on Thursday uh, why he is the first director to withhold ever a whistleblower complaint. And we are going to make sure that we get that complaint, that whistleblower is protected. Uh, and we're going to make sure that we find out whether the president is engaged in this kind of improper conduct. Um, but it may be that we do have to move forward uh, with that extraordinary remedy uh, if indeed the president is at the same time withholding vital uh, military assistance. Uh, he is trying to leverage that uh, to obtain impermissible help in his political campaign. A little later on in the program, we'll speak with former CIA case officer Jack Rice about how serious a situation this is, because it is. But there's other news happening. The U.N.'s annual General Assembly kicks off Monday in New York with more than 90 heads of state gathering at U.N. headquarters for a week's worth of meetings. The first big event is the Climate Action Summit, where U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres has asked leaders to offer, quote, concrete and transformative plans to fight the climate crisis. Most member countries are expected to make pledges to reduce greenhouse gases or otherwise tackle man-made changes to the environment, but not Donald Trump. Trump, whose administration refutes scientific evidence that the Earth's climate, sea temperatures, and weather patterns are being altered by man-made causes, will instead headline an event about religious freedom scheduled while the rest of the world's leaders are focused on climate change. This comes on the heels of Friday's global climate strike and kickoff of a week of activities, which also includes the beginning of the U.N.'s Climate Action Summit. Millions of people participated around the world with crowd sizes as high as 4 million. On Tuesday, the parade of speeches by world leaders begins, starting with Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro. Donald Trump is also scheduled to speak Tuesday. And everyone's watching to see whether or not Trump meets with Iranian President Hassan Rouhani, this after tensions between the two countries flared up after the attack on the oil fields in Saudi Arabia. One previously scheduled world leader will not be attending, as he's no longer looking like a world leader. The process of selecting Israel's next prime minister entered its second stage on Sunday. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's tenure appeared rocky as Arab parties in Israel threw their weight behind Benny Gantz. He's Netanyahu's rival in the country's deadlocked second election. Ready to be outraged? This weekend, a Republican Party conference was being held on Michigan's quaint and beautiful Mackinac Island. 
Other than emergency and construction vehicles, there are no cars or trucks on the island. They've been banned there for more than a century. But when Vice President Mike Pence arrived by helicopter Saturday to attend this conference, he made his way down one of the island's main roads in a motorcade of eight SUVs, (laughs) flanked by state police on bicycles. But it was for a trek of less than one mile from the airport. Pence is the first sitting vice president to visit Mackinac Island. He's apparently also the first government official to break with the island's carless tradition. Previous VIPs have gotten around the 3.8-square-mile island by horse-drawn carriage, including former presidents and the only sitting president to visit, Gerald Ford, in 1975. Unbelievable. While Game of Thrones is officially over, the epic TV series capped off its run Sunday night by winning its fourth Emmy for Best Drama Series. Over eight seasons, Game of Thrones won 59 Emmys. There was an upset in the Best Comedy category where the Amazon series Fleabag took the prize for Best Comedy, and its star, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, also took home acting and writing honors. Post star Billy Porter made history becoming the first openly gay black man to win the lead actor in a drama series Emmy. And although the show itself suffered from terrible writing, there were a few noteworthy acceptance speeches. Thanks to the Academy for voting for us because uh, we love you for that. And speaking of voting and love, uh, go and register to vote. Go to vote.gov. Vote.gov and vote. Register. My grandmother turned to a guard. She was in line to be shot into a pit, and she said, what happens if I step out of line? And he said, I don't have the heart to shoot you, but somebody will. And she stepped out of line. And for that, I am here. And for that, my children are here. So step out of line, ladies. Step out of line. A couple of great bits of advice there from Emmy winners Billy Porter of Pose and Alex Borstein of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. All right. As I mentioned before, former CIA case officer Jack Rice joins me next to weigh in on what I consider treasonous behavior by the president of the United States. Hey, Speaker Pelosi, get with the program. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, in for Brad Friedman on today's edition of The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. From the wells of disappointment where the women kneel to pray For the grace of God in the desert here in the desert far away Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your trusty guest host, filling in for Brad and Desi while they deal with one of life's most painful episodes. So thanks for bearing with me during this tough time for them. 
You know, I feel as if we've entered uncharted territory. A sitting president accused of extorting a foreign leader, dangling military aid as a carrot to get a foreign country to help derail a president's political opponent. To talk me through the enormity of it all, I reached out to my old friend, Jack Rice. In addition to being a journalist and a talk show host and a trial lawyer, Jack Rice is a former CIA case officer, which, Jack, this gives you, I think, a unique perspective on what's going on. I said I thought that Trump's behavior was treasonous. Am I overstating that? No, I don't think you are. I'm thinking about this as somebody who uh, sworn an oath to protect the United States. I've worked in Iraq, Afghanistan, Kosovo, a whole bunch of places around the world. And when we look at what this president has done, this is extraordinary. And I, I exclude everything in the Mueller report. I exclude all of that, although that really does play a role here. But if we look specifically at what this president has admitted to, what he did was eight times during the conversation with Ukraine was he wanted Ukraine to go after his own political rival. This is, and he's admitted it, by the way. He's yes. admitted it. Yep. And the thing is, is, this is something that we have never seen from any former president in the history of the United States. And that is an astounding, objective fact. You know what else is astounding? He's doing this almost like in plain sight. This is a continuation of Trump's contention during the, the campaign that he could go out on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and no one would do anything. He told George Stephanopoulos in his last big network interview that he would take help from a foreign entity in a, to, on a political campaign. I mean, with opposition research, as he likes to call it, on a political opponent. This is not done in the United States of America, it is. Does he not understand that, or does he just not care? Well, again, this is this is the interesting fact, and again, this is not subjective. This is the objective fact. What he did tell Stephanopoulos was, "I would certainly take opposition research. I would take information from a foreign government mm -hmm. to benefit my campaign." Which yep. In itself, is unbelievable. By the way, and illegal. Let's be clear, illegal. Yes. Um, but that's not what he did in this case. He didn't say, I'm going to be sitting back passively. Right. Uh, and if somebody shows up on my doorstep and hands me a paper bag with information against Biden or, or, or Harris or, or whomever else, uh, he would accept that. This isn't even that. This is him picking up the phone and saying, hey, by the way, here's my address. I want you to go find some information and don't forget the, ba the paper bag. I mean, this, this is actually the proactive effort to get that very same information. And I keep coming back to this. This is not a subjective position. This is objective. This is what he said, what he acknowledged, what he admitted to. Exactly. And and to I, I mean, to make matters even worse, when you look at the timeline, this phone call was placed the day after Robert Mueller testified before Congress. So I guess Trump was feeling particularly emboldened that he escaped um, relatively unscathed compared to what should have happened to him because of, I guess, Mueller's r reluctance to, to testify and um, his lackluster performance, let's put it that way. So Trump then reaches out to the leader of Ukraine and says, 
get me dirt on Joe Biden without without saying in so many words, we're going to hold up your $250 million in military aid until you do so. But that aid was held up after that call. And I just read an account in one of the papers that said uh, Ukraine was perplexed as to why the aid wasn't coming after that phone call. And it wasn't until, what, two weeks ago that inexplicably... I guess as as um, rumblings of this whistleblower report were out there that the Trump administration all of a sudden quietly released the funds. What the administration is doing right now is they're trying to hang their hat on something else. And what they're saying is that this is essentially the claim by the left that this is extortion and that what that what the president, according to, to, to the president, what the left is arguing is that the president simply said, I want you to get this information if it's there. Not that he said, I want you to get the information. And if you don't, then I'm not going to give you uh, the funding that we've already promised you. The problem with the president's argument is this. It's the history of the relationship between the U.S. and specifically the Trump administration. Let's be clear: the Trump administration and Ukraine. And if we take a look exactly what happened with the Trump administration and Ukraine, that goes a little deeper than just this story. Remember, that was the whole concern that many had in the first place about why the president was standing so strongly behind the Russians. And remember the close relationship that was going on between the president's former campaign chairman and the Ukrainians and the Russians. And that the real fear here was that what this was was simply the second step in that threat by the president, specifically involving the, uh, the, uh, the, the Ukrainian issue and the Crimea and the Russians and the willingness for the Americans and specifically the administration to turn their back and let the Russians do anything they wanted to do to the Ukrainians. And then you actually withhold the very funding that was the lifeblood of the Ukrainian government to actually protect themselves. If that in itself isn't a threat against the sovereignty of that country, I don't know what is. So if you look at what it is that he said eight times, I want this information, you look at the history of this president against this country and the pro-Russian stance that he's taken again and again and again, and then you withhold the $250 million. Mm-hmm. You combine all that, and that literally, that is illustrative of exactly what extortion means. Exactly. That's why there needs to be an investigation. Without a doubt. Now, Jack Rice, I, I, I got to ask you this. You're, again, to reset, you're a former case officer at the CIA, when you first heard that uh, that the director of national intelligence was refusing to hand over a whistleblower report that the, that the intelligence community's inspector general found not only credible, but urgent, he refused to turn it over to Congress. What, what were your thoughts? Now, it's amazing to me when McGuire actually said that he, he refused to turn this over, you know, one of the problems that we have with the agency over and over again, in general, that there's a philosophical belief frequently in the intelligence community as a whole that security is paramount. And that at all costs, 
at every cost and at every turn that you need to make sure that nobody sees this information. The problem is, is this is a republic. And in a democratic republic, part of what we need to be able to be is we need to be as transparent as possible because we are the servants of the American people. And what we have is a Congress that is standing in the place of the American people trying to understand something and specifically understand wrongdoing. You can do this in closed session. You can even do this with the top four. And this is exactly what it was that we were talking about when you go all the way back to Watergate. The whole purpose was what you can't do is wrap bad behavior inside of national security. And that's the argument. You can't wrap it inside of national security and say we need to protect it. No, no, no. What you need to do is expose bad behavior and make it as transparent as possible so you can protect that which needs to be protected because everybody will doubt everything otherwise. Of course. So so then the, the logical question is we have... Uh, on every front, it seems like unprecedented actions happening. The House, the, the Democratic Party-led House, has been, um, how do I put this uh, bluntly, uh, somehow uh, trying to begin oversight in, in, in the lamest of fashions. And you have administration that's telling former staffers, and even in the case of Corey Lewandowski, someone who never worked at the White House, telling them to ignore congressional subpoenas. And in the case of Lewandowski, he had to show up because he, he couldn't give him, uh, uh, I don't know, the reason to not show up. But he told him, you've got absolute privilege, I think it was called, absolute privilege, something that doesn't really exist, um, and so you don't have to answer their questions. Gerald Nadler should have found Lewandowski in contempt that moment and had the sergeant-at-arms haul him off to the Capitol jail, which they need to clear out and put back in in, in uh, service. And the other two, Rob uh, Porter and, and the other guy, the other uh, deputy chief of McGann. staff— Yes, uh, not McGann, but McGahn too. All of these former administration officials who are refusing to comply with congressional subpoenas, they all need to be arrested and held in contempt of Congress. I don't know what, what the, the Democrats are waiting for. Do you? Well, you know, one, one of the problems is this. And again, and part of, of what I've done in my career, not just on the intelligence side, but again, working around the world, is, is I, I, I look at this sort of in the bigger picture sense. One of the problems that we're facing right now is this, is that we've seen an ongoing and continuing expansion of presidential power. And that ongoing and continuing expansion has been the fault of both the Republicans and the Democrats. It truly has. And, and the reason that it has is that every time one gets in power, and actually oversteps, nobody does anything because their response would generally be, well, guess what? Our guy's going to be next. And when our person gets in, in, in that position, we'll be able to expand even further. And the problem is, is they have. And so what you've seen further and further down the road is the diminishing of congressional oversight and congressional power to the benefit of this uh, unilateral a power that, that's coming out of the White House. Right. And so, but the problem, of course, is that at some point, at some point, you're going to get a president who actually cares more about themselves than they actually do about the country and are willing to actually basically say it and willing to do any and everything and play exclusively to their base regardless of anything else without shame. 
without limitation. And, and where we sit right now is exactly in that spot. He plays to his base, and no matter what he does, they continue to beat the, the drum based upon that argument, and they move forward, and nobody can do anything. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, I, I'm firmly of the mind that the Democrats, especially, well, under Nancy Pelosi, I put the blame firmly on her, is uh, shirking her responsibility of congressional oversight. And I'm afraid her inaction is going to render the Congress's ability to perform oversight obsolete. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've been watching this, too. And it does seem, looking at where she is, it, 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 is that the case? The answer is clearly. Congress has an absolute obligation. This isn't something you do because you're in the mood. You don't do this because it seems like, gosh, this may be a good idea. Maybe we should do this because people are watching that. Uh, rather, Congress has an obligation. That they are the third leg of the, of the proverbial stool. They have to do this. It does seem clearly, though, that what she is doing here is, is she is being the political animal that she is. And I don't mean that necessarily in the worst sense, because obviously, from her perspective, the purpose here is, and what she has already said very clearly, is we can move forward on impeachment once we get bipartisan support. Oh. And, the fear, and I do think there is some legitimacy to it, is that if you look back at what happened to Bill Clinton, is Bill Clinton was impeached. It went to the Senate. It went nowhere. And he won re-election because he was able to use that as a justification, but it, but, as an excuse for his bad behavior. And I think that's what you might see from a president. Yeah, court. but you know what? I, I firmly disagree with that notion. What Bill Clinton did was, I'm sorry, he, uh, well, let's see, we're, we're on terrestrial radio, so I really can't say what I wanted to say. <laughs> but it was it was not yeah. a ma- matter of national security. He did something stupid with, a, with an intern in the Oval Office. Um, not exactly high crimes and misdemeanors. What Donald Trump has done? is wholly different. And I really oh, think I you know, that, that the, the impeachment happens in the House. It's up to the Senate then to vote as to whether or not to convict him, to remove him from office. And I think that, you know, all those Republican senators who are not calling him out for his illegal and immoral and disgusting and treasonous behavior, um, I think that, you know, putting them on the record is of greater political benefit, if you want to couch it in those terms, to the hmm. Democrats than not impeaching him would be, which I think will turn so many young people who came out to vote in 2018 to give Democrats the power of oversight. And now seeing them shirking that responsibility, I think you're going to get a whole lot of young people staying home if that's what happens. Well, see, it's, it's a great question. And again, on the political side, I certainly leave that, that to you. It, it, but that seems to be the calculation that's being made right now. I think, but when I look at this from an intelligent perspective, you know, I, I, I look at where this president is. And what I think I can say with some confidence is this. Would I ever want to give the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, meaning the nuclear codes and everything mm. else? Would I want to give those to somebody who couldn't actually get a security clearance themselves. No. And the, and and the answer is no. Right. And, and I say that very specifically because, first of all, here's what we can say with certainty. This is a man who gave classified information to the Russians in the Oval Office. That's right. It was objectively classified. Yep. 
And this is something you would never, ever under any circumstances do. And as importantly, and you can see what he's done with the Russians, but I mean, even with the limited contacts that he's had and what we've found through, uh, through the lines of the Mueller report and more recently with this Ukrainian question, do you give a security clearance to a man has, who has been willingly uh, able to expose himself to blackmail mm-hmm. by foreign governments by your behavior? And if, if those two things are true, you would not give a security clearance to somebody like that. And the reason is because they can be exploited. They can be manipulated. They can be turned to the benefit of those countries. And so you would absolutely say, I'm sorry, but we cannot provide you with a clearance because it's a privilege. I'm not talking about secret. I'm not talking about top secret. I'm talking about something called SCI clearances. That's sensitive compartmentalized information. This is stuff that's above that. And that's mm. where I was working. Wow. And you wouldn't give that to somebody like this. You just wouldn't. Right. No, of course not. And yet we have this thing sitting in the Oval Office. It, it, uh, uh, you know, well, I guess this week, there's a lot riding on this week. Uh, the Democrats will finally either step up to the challenge of oversight or they'll abdicate that responsibility, in which case I think we as a nation are done. I think there's a couple of directions that Congress can go right now when it comes to the issue. You know, for some people, the idea of saying the, the, the answer is we need to go directly to impeachment. And it's a question, obviously, I leave to others. But, but I do think that what Congress does have the ability to do in this case, the House specifically, is to look at changing the rules and changing the rules uh, regarding holding people in contempt and also to clarify the, the limitations, and some of this is going to have to go through the courts, but citing legitimately to clarify the limitations that this administration, and honestly, other administrations have tried to do in their bad behavior, uh, when it comes to uh, what's privileged and what isn't. The idea that what you can do with a Lewandowski is to provide him with a blanket, a blanket here, it, it simply is, is inappropriate and incredible. And I, and I use that word in a very specific sense. It's incredible when you can actually make that argument and not almost learn while you say it as a lawyer. So I think about the privilege that I might apply under certain circumstances. When you, it doesn't pass that test, you know you might be on shaky ground. Gotcha. Jack Rice, uh, you can find him on Twitter at Jack Rice. You can find him on Facebook. You can visit his website, which is all loaded with all kinds of interesting stuff and amazing pictures at jackrice.net. Jack, it's always great to pick your brain. I thank you for your expertise and, and always value your opinion. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. I'm not sure that we figured anything out, but this is the kind of conversation that is happening or should be happening around kitchen tables and water coolers around the nation. Something has got to give. And that brings me to an editorial that was in the Sunday New York Times, written by columnist David Leonhardt. The headline reads, Donald Trump versus the United States of America. Just the facts in 40 sentences. And it's certainly worth sharing. So here we go. It reads, quote, He has pressured a foreign leader to interfere in the 2020 American presidential election. He urged a foreign country to intervene in the 2016 presidential election. He divulged classified information to foreign officials. 
He publicly undermined American intelligence agents while standing next to a hostile foreign autocrat. He hired a national security advisor who he knew had secretly worked as a foreign lobbyist. He encourages foreign leaders to enrich him and his family by staying at his hotels. He genuflects to murderous dictators. He has alienated America's closest allies. He lied to the American people about his company's business dealings in Russia. He tells new lies virtually every week about the economy, voter fraud, even the weather. He spends hours on end watching television and days on end staying at resorts. He often declines to read briefing books or perform other basic functions of a president's job. He has aides, as well as members of his own party in Congress, who mock him behind his back as unfit for office. He has repeatedly denigrated a deceased U.S. senator who was a war hero. He insulted a Gold Star family, the survivors of American troops killed in action. He described a former first lady not long after she died as, quote, nasty. He described white supremacists as, quote, some very fine people. He told four women of color, all citizens and members of Congress to, quote, go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came. He made a joke about Pocahontas during a ceremony honoring Native American World War II veterans. He launched his political career by falsely claiming that the first black president was not really American. He launched his presidential campaign by describing Mexicans as, quote, rapists. He has described women variously as, quote, a dog, a pig, and horse face, as well as, quote, bleeding badly from a facelift and having, quote, blood coming out of her wherever. He has been accused of sexual assault or misconduct by multiple women. He enthusiastically campaigned for a Senate candidate who was accused of molesting multiple teenage girls. He waved around his arms while giving a speech to ridicule a physically disabled person. He has encouraged his supporters to commit violence against his political opponents. He has called for his opponents and critics to be investigated and jailed. He uses a phrase popular with dictators, quote, the enemy of the people, to describe journalists. He attempts to undermine any independent source of information that he doesn't like, including judges, scientists, journalists, election officials, the FBI, the CIA, the Congressional Budget Office, and the National Weather Service. He has tried to harass the chairman of the Federal Reserve into lowering interest rates. He has said that a judge could not be objective because of his Mexican heritage. He obstructed justice by trying to influence an investigation into his presidential campaign. He violated federal laws by directing his lawyer to pay $280,000 in hush money to cover up two apparent extramarital affairs. He made his fortune partly through wide-scale financial fraud. He has refused to release his tax returns. He falsely accused his predecessor of wiretapping him. He claimed that federal law enforcement agents and prosecutors regularly fabricated evidence, thereby damaging the credibility of criminal investigations across the country. He has ordered children to be physically separated from their parents. He has suggested that America is no different from or better than Vladimir Putin's Russia. He has called America a, quote, hellhole. 
He is the President of the United States, and he is a threat to virtually everything that the United States should stand for. Again, those are the words in a New York Times opinion piece written by columnist David Leonhardt that appeared in the Sunday, September 22nd uh, edition of the New York Times. Those words should be repeated by everyone until that criminal, corrupt individual one is removed from the Oval Office. And if all that wasn't bad enough, the dotard skipped Monday's UN Climate Action Summit, the first major event of the UN General Assembly that kicked off Monday morning, to deal with global climate change. Instead, Donald Trump is having a panel on religious freedom. I hope you're as outraged over that as I am. It is Climate Week. We'll talk to the CEO of a new organization that believes not only can we stop the effects of climate change, we can turn things around and bring the planet back to where we were 100 years ago. It may be wishful thinking, but it's a good goal to have. We'll explore that next. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com. In for Brad Friedman on today's broadcast. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at Brad bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Everywhere you go, always take the weather with you. Everywhere you go, always take the weather. Everywhere Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, filling in for Brad and Desi while they're out dealing with a family medical emergency. We are in the midst now of Climate Week. It's in coordination with the U.N. and the city of New York. And the big kickoff event happened Monday morning as the U.N. Secretary General held a climate action summit. Most member countries are expected to make pledges to reduce greenhouse gases and tackle man-made changes to the environment. Most, but not Donald Trump. Trump skipped the climate action summit in order to hold a meeting dealing with religious freedom. Meanwhile, 16-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg addressed the General Assembly of the United Nations as things were getting underway. I think Donald Trump particularly should listen to what she had to say. My message is that we'll be watching you. (laughs) This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. 
Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you're doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil, and that I refuse to believe. On the line right now with me is Rick Parnell. He's the CEO of a new group that just uh, actually kicked off their launch, Foundation for Climate Restoration. Rick, you kicked off the foundation last week on Tuesday. It was during the first annual Global Climate Restoration Forum at the UN in advance of this week's climate strike uh, activities and today's official beginning of the UN General Assembly with the UN Climate Action Summit. Did, did I get that right? Did I confuse anything or complain you, anything? You got it right. Thank you. And I will say that um, I, I love the fact that you talked about the first annual Global Climate Restoration Forum at the UN. <laughs> that actually is was our kickoff. And so it's great. It's, it's definitely getting out there. So thank you. Yes, we had the kickoff Tuesday, we did about a two-and-a-half-hour forum of solutions at the U.N. Um, and the uh, Trusteeship Council, if you know the U.N., that's one of the largest rooms there. So we were absolutely thrilled with the turnout. And our message is that uh, while there is a, a lot of work to do, it can be done. So that was the, the theme. And, and we do it in a market-based approach So um, for most of the work that we're doing. So it was great to have the kickoff uh, last Tuesday. Thank you. So what sets your group apart from others that are, and there are a lot, thankfully, that are working on uh, making this planet inhabitable for our children and grandchildren and their children going forward? Um, what, sets, what sets your group apart from the others, the Foundation for Climate Restoration? What's, what are you sure. about? I would say on the, somewhat of the more technical side, um, Kathleen Rogers, president of Earth Day, they're one of our great partners. She always says, Rick, what you guys are doing is the third leg of the stool. Mitigation, adaptation, critically important. The UN and member states leading on it, it's so important to do. But the piece that's been missing is the third leg, restoration. And restoration is quite simply, we cannot wait to get the excess carbon out of the air. We're at 415 parts per million now. And historically, man has survived, humans have survived at less than 300 parts per million. So our goal is that between now and 2050, we will get, a, get the, the world back to less than 300 parts per million. I can tell you that everyone from Paul Hawkins and, and all of others have said to me, wow, that's aggressive. It is, but it's critical. It's just the entire future of humanity. Um, so on the technical side, the other is that one of the things that I, I know others talk about it, so it's certainly not an exclusive for us, nor would we ever want it to be exclusive. But we talk about this. This is not a, a, a planetary issue. This is a human issue. The mm. planet, is, while all the damage that will happen, Earth will be here after 
the, the long extinction of humanity. And it's up to us to ensure that there is not an extinction of humanity and certainly all the other species. Um, but if we love our children and our grandchildren, and we all do, then we want to ensure the future of humanity. So th- those are our two big pieces. Gotcha. Well, the website is foundationforclimaterestoration.org. And so I go there, I click on the About tab, and I, it, it, it presents me with your mission statement, which reads, Our vision is restoring a safe and healthy climate like we had 100 years ago. Our mission is to catalyze action to build full capacity by 2030 to restore the climate by 2050. Our founding question, how might humanity reverse global warming and safety restore the climate uh, and safely restore the climate and the Arctic ice by the year 2050? Um, if if you look at, at all the papers that have been produced, both by the U.N. and by uh, other organizations around the world, um, uh, the last I heard is we're now down to about 11 years, if not 10, before we we reach the point of no return. You're saying we can turn things around within uh, by 2030 or 2050 to bring the planet back to where it was 100 years ago? That's very optimistic, isn't it? It's, it's very optimistic, but, but the idea here is that we can be on a path by 2030 that we can start to bring the um, excess carbon down. We won't be mission um, completed by 2030, no. But what, what I've said to many people is that for, for the foundation itself, our next 12 to 36 months are critical. We've got to get on with this. And then so that we're on a clear path by 2030. And I would like to go out of business in 2030 and say it's on a path. The, the humanity has woken up and has decided to make this change. And that by 2050, um, you're looking at getting um, carbon back down to pre-industrial revolution, uh, three and a parts per million. You have to do that. I mean, a lot of different um, solutions are out there. Some um, are scalable. Some are need more research, such as some of the ice restoration pieces. But if you take one example that, that we've been working with, is a new company in San Francisco that does um, carbon negative um, concrete, not just carbon neutral, but it literally um, uses carbon, turns it into aggregate, uh, which replaces limestone, um, to make concrete. It also can use, um, uh, it could recycle um, old concrete and use it as a, uh, as a base for, for new concrete. Um, where I think we differ a little bit is that we think about this as, and governments are, are critical. There's a lot of conversations going on, but if this is really going to move rapidly, you're going to have to do this through a market-driven approach. Right. So thinking I, in terms of, of, you know, we're going to build buildings anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I, there are, some people have argued with me and said we should just get out of concrete altogether. Well, that's not realistic. So how do we do it so that it is actually carbon negative? The Canadian government, for example, another uh, quasi-partner I, uh, we've been working with, um, they are releasing this fall Carbon Star. It's going to be it's much like Energy Star or the LEED standard for buildings, where you actually can go through a process, will your building be Carbon Star rated to be carbon negative, actually removing carbon from the air. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, it's just we need to be able to focus more on these. One of our partners, XPRIZE, is doing a $100 million carbon removal um, challenge. And we're hoping that a lot of solutions come out of that that we don't even know about and that how can we help and highlight and and lift them up through the coalition. Right. I I think it might have been on 60 Minutes this weekend. I saw a story 
um, about, I think it was Iceland, where they've come up with a, a, a mechanism by which it extracts carbon from the atmosphere, injects it into, I guess, the earth, and it comes out with these, what appear to be stones with the, the carbon built into it. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. I do. I've, it, the name escapes me. But yeah, doing the direct air capture and uh, driving it into stone, which is fantastic. Um, we believe there's there's no enemies on this path. There's no negatives. So don't take it in any way. But what's the market for that? That's the head scratcher. So, uh, you know, concrete, there's clearly a market. So um, we're looking at other solutions. There, there must be a way to turn that into some sort of a market. There has been, you know, carbon sequestration, but what's the market? There's been carbon direct air capture that can put um, the carbon into uh, fizzy water, which, which is fine, but hmm. then effectively it's still recirculating into the system. So there's, there, there's, there's a few of these types of technologies that actually um, will have a market behind it. We just need to identify more. So our mission is to, we don't know what we don't know, right. but um, what are the technologies out there that are just clamoring? Uh, I mean, I, I have talked to people in Fortune 500 companies about some of the stuff going on in concrete. They have no idea. And their answer back to me, and this is from C-suite on down, is we'd love to be engaged in that. We'd love to do our buildings in carbon negative concrete. We just didn't know it existed. Huh. So that's why I'm saying I think that there is, there's technology out there. There's solutions. I'm a huge believer. Um, I, I believe that humans um, at their core are, are good. And I think that people really want to be able to do the right thing. It doesn't matter whether you're sitting in a C-suite in a boardroom or you, you have children and grandchildren too. You want to do the right thing. You just need to know that the technology is out there and it's not going to be something that's cost prohibitive. Right now, it looks like the, um, the premium on doing carbon negative concrete would be somewhere between one and 2% more. Well, that's negligible. Of right. course you want to do right. carbon negative concrete. Sure. Um, it, it seems like most of us uh, believe this. Most of us are in this uh, broad-based coalition. Again, we're speaking with Rick Parnell, the CEO of the newly launched Foundation for Climate Restoration. There's the, the um, I guess we could call it the elephant in the room, or not in the room, as the case may be, because we're actually recording this Monday morning as the U.N. General Assembly has kicked off. The first big event is uh, Climate Action uh, uh, Summit, and Donald Trump is notoriously absent. He chose to uh, not participate in this panel the same way he didn't participate in the climate panel at the G7 uh, a month or so ago. Instead, he's doing some nonsense thing about, um, I don't even know, religious freedom. Like, really? Uh, he's the only world leader not participating in this, so, or, so I believe. Um, how do we get around that other than throwing him out of office? <laughs> well, I, I won't speak to the politics of it, but um, I will. I, our belief is that you just go around it. Mm. You just literally go around it. There's a market out there. Um, people care. And, you know, one of the uh, speakers at our forum at the UN was the Vatican. So I, I don't know what he's doing in Washington with his rally, and that's fine. Uh, but um, faith leaders believe that uh, whatever your religion, that this planet was put here in order for us to take care of it. We should be better um, stewards of the planet and the people and the animals. So, um, I, you know, if you're a religious person and, and, whatever your faith, then you should do this because 
your God said that, that take care of the earth, take care of each other. And that's exactly what we're doing in climate restoration. That's exactly what people are doing at the UN is they're trying to figure out ways forward to help out humanity and the environment that we live in. So as far as, as um, you know, I, a lot of what uh, a lot of us do is that we just prepare our strategies for a, a post uh, 2020 election. And it, it will either be more of the same and we'll just continue to work mm-hmm. around it or there'll be a, a change of administration and we'll all be ready to to quickly um, deploy on some, some of these solutions and policies that need to change. So um, we'll just be ready one way or another. But um the future of humanity is far more important than someone sitting in the White House right now. Oh, so, of course. Um, it would be easier be to it would be easier though to address the subject of the the, the <laughs> continuation of humanity if we had somebody who believed in science sitting in the Oval Office. Um, well, there is that. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> so uh, again, yeah. um, you guys put out in, in conjunction with the launch of the Foundation for Climate Restoration a white paper that. Um, it purports to be the first to examine climate science and the new solutions. This seems to be a different way to look at it than um, because I think the focus has been on ameliorating the, the, the horrific conditions that are happening every day rather than reversing it. This is a very optimistic take on it, which is good to hear because frankly, um, you know, look, I'm older. I've sort of uh, given up. I'm I'm glad I'm not of childbearing age anymore because I'm I don't give I, up. I, uh, I, I have a daughter who's 20 who does not want children because one of the main reasons, and I hear it from a lot of kids her age, they don't want to bring new life into this planet. Now I adopted my daughter, and she wouldn't be uh, against adopting another child, but but the trepidation comes in bringing new life onto this planet where many of us seriously worry about its future. You're saying you think we can turn it around. I think we can turn it around. And I will tell you that of all the different meetings of the last uh, week or so, um, and that, uh, you know, that are coming up, the greatest moment for me of the forum and the follow-up, we had a small um, strategy session the next morning to talk to our partners about the way forward. And one of our partners had brought in some youth, um, 16, 17-year-old high school students from Chicago, and this, this young uh, woman, Ashley, uh, 16 years old, at, towards the end, I said, does anybody else have any other thoughts they want to talk about? And she raised her hand and she said, I want you to know that I've had a 180 experience here. I walked into this thinking we're doomed and we, I will not have children and there is no future. And she said, I'm walking out of here inspired that we can do this. We just have to choose to do it. Yeah. So for me, it's. If if I can touch in anybody just one at a time through for the work we're doing at the foundation and 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 be inspired, I mean they deserve to have the kind of future that that we all want. They deserve to have the life experience that we all had, um, and that's that's every child everywhere in the world. So that's why we're doing this. Gotcha. Well, I thank you. <clears throat> I thank you for stepping up and doing this. Uh, I guess it's up to all of us. Now, if people want to join in, is the Foundation for Climate Restoration an organization that an average person can participate in? Or, or are you looking for big other organizations and corporations who can add clout to it? Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's everyone can everyone. join in. Join the coalition. If you go to our website, f4cr.org. And you'll see there, you can click on and join the coalition and, you know, stay with us and learn uh, probably quarterly. We're still working some of that out, but solutions that you can do yourself. It's also how you can vote. It's how you can do your personal behavior. 
Um, but we want everyone to join because, as we like to say, the future um, survival and thriving of humanity is on every single one of us. It's all our responsibility to ensure the future of humanity. Great. And and the week, I mean, uh, the, the, this week kicked off with the big clo- uh, global climate strike on Friday. As this week progresses, obviously, I mentioned the U.N. General Assembly is in session. There are events. There's a big wash, uh, a march on Washington today, on Monday. Um, there are other events going on. Are you guys participating in any of that, or is it just moving full steam ahead with uh, uh, getting the foundation and, and your white paper and your pronoun- your, your, your cure, basically, <laughs> to turn things around off <laughs> the ground? Yes, we are participating. Um, and actually, I, I was at the strike on Friday. Uh, it was so powerful to see um, one of our keynote speakers at the forum at the UN was Katie Edler. She's leading Future Coalition, which is 40 some odd different youth organizations. Um, she's now 19. She's been doing this for a couple of years now. Wow. So powerful. She had people at the UN in tears, which does not happen often, but people were in tears as she was talking about the future that she wants and the future that's possible. So Everyone can join. We love the, the, the youth component here. The strike was amazing, absolutely amazing. And, yes, we will be in events and convenings all week long. Great. Well, it, you know, this is a great time to get everyone reactivated um, uh, it, more than just, you know, recycling and maybe get a more uh, fuel-efficient car. What, what is one thing that the average listener could be doing to help turn things around? So I think the average listener, I mean, I think people are doing things like planting trees and not using straws and trying to reduce their, their beef consumption and, and some of those. And that's, that's critically important. The other thing that I think people can do is that they can use the power of their own purse. And that is, are, are you looking at companies that are starting to talk about doing things in a carbon negative way? Hmm. Um, it's not just offsets. It's our, our companies making um, investments um, in their own future, their infrastructure. Um, we had uh, Santa Clara County, for example, um, they were, the county commissioner was one of the speakers at our forum, and Santa Clara has become the first county in the world to be a carbon negative county. And so now they're looking at what is their own procurement process, how are they budgeting to become a carbon negative. And what uh, um, Cortezzi, uh, Dave Cortezzi, the, the commissioner, said at the forum is, I challenge every local government, every subnational around the world, you can do this too. You don't have to wait for your national governments and for these kinds of um, discussions to happen, you can do this in your own backyard. So use the power of the vote. Call on your local politician to be thinking about uh, working on carbon reversing. Um, uh, use your own purchasing power um, and, you know, overall use your, your vote next year. Uh, great. And, uh, and I think many of us are already doing that, but we, we need to be spurred to action sometimes. Rick Parnell, CEO of the Foundation for Climate Restoration. You can find it at foundationforclimaterestoration.org. I will post links on uh, bradblog.com. Rick, thank you so much for the work you're doing and for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. And that brings us to the end of another edition of The Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler of NicoleSandler.com, home base to the Nicole Sandler Show. Doing my best to help Brad and Desi out. Uh, Boy, what they're going through is um, unfortunately something that most adult children eventually face, the mortality of our parents. So thank you for bearing with me. I'll be here as long as they need me. Tomorrow, Angie Coiro will be in, and then I'll return the following day. 
to hold down the fort until Brad and Desi can return. In the meantime, if you've got any uh, comments or feedback or suggestions, feel free to reach out, Nicole at NicoleSandler.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at Nicole Sandler, on Facebook at NSandler, or right here at the Bradcast. Until next time, as Brad likes to say, good luck, world. <laughs>